0: You're listening to a podcast from the University of Warwick. This series was produced as part of the conference All Together Now, British Theatre After Multiculturalism. The conference is organised in collaboration with the British Theatre Consortium. In this episode, we hear from film and theatre director Richard Eyre, speaking as part of the panel discussion, A National Theatre.
1: OK, we'll, um, we'll make a start. Uh, welcome back to the, uh, to the last... Uh, last furlong uh, of, of this conference, um, we started yesterday morning uh, with uh, Michael Boyd, uh, who, uh, though he had to leave early, I like to feel has been represented throughout this conference by the mysteriously and persistently illuminated <laughs> uh, <coughs> lectern um, but he's, he started I, I thought rather uh, brilliantly by talking about the the six different types of history that uh, emerge from our encounter with Shakespeare, uh, still, of course, you know, very widely referred to as our national playwright. Uh, for this last uh, panel, we return to the national scale um, to consider not uh, history, but uh, the present uh, and the, no doubt, multiple futures um, that are available to theatre and its engagement with nation. Uh, The the very idea of a national theatre is uh, is a more or less an eighteenth century nineteenth century um, uh, phenomenon, and uh, it emerged from that huge reorganization of Europe um, into nation states. uh, And whenever uh, particular peoples um, sent up a cry to be to be um, represented uh, in uh, in the nation state, they very often also sent up a cry to be uh, for, for a national theatre. And many of the main national theatres of Europe have their roots in that period. And throughout the 20th century, very often, at moments of national crisis, whether it would be 1941, 1968, 1989, uh, theatres, those national theatres, were returned to uh, as, uh, as as... Sometimes symbolic, sometimes very practical crucibles for um, uh, national contestation, renegotiation, and renewal. Um, At the end of the first decade of the 21st century, of course, the picture is quite different. And I think, I I suppose, there are forces pulling in two different directions uh, that are operating on the nation, and therefore possibly on the notion of a national theatre. One of them, I suppose, uh, I think it's quite well captured in, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, there was a, a, a documentary around the time they were planning the Millennium Dome, and they were looking back at the 1951 Festival of Britain, on which I think the Millennium Dome was was uh, was sort of fairly consciously uh, modelled. Um, and they showed a clip of somebody, uh, some one of the... the founders of the Festival of Britain in 1951, and the interviewer in 1951 said, who are you trying to attract? And the the person said, we want to attract the people. You then cut straight to Michael Grade, uh, and they asked him the same question about the Millennium Dome, and he said, we're trying to attract, well, the people, he said. Uh, And I think those air quotation marks are uh, a sign of something having changed over the last 50 years that we feel less confident about identifying the people in one breath, as it were. So in that sense, uh, the idea of nation seems to be uh, collapsing into a series of sub-national identities. On the other hand, uh, of course, the, 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 the same principles that led to people wanting to represent themselves at the level of nation, I think was about... People want feeling that the nation state would be the most effective way of embodying democracy, uh, justice, rights, citizenship, and so on. Of course, uh, in the twenty first century, it's it's by no means self evident that the nation state is a particularly effective way of doing that. Um, You know, you will no doubt know the very the, the famous statistic now that of the the 100 largest economies in the world, only 49 of them are nations, the other 51 are global corporations. So there are a number of different forces that are superseding the nation. There are, uh, there are forces and powers that are more important than the nation, and there are uh, a number of arguments about whether uh, we need to think about new forms of international uh, global citizenship and so on. Where does that leave the idea of a national theatre. Uh, there are, of course, a number of different ways we could, we could see national theatre. It's possible that uh, the uh, national theatre is simply about competing uh, in a global free market of nations, as in the front cover of the Observer Review today, how British theatre took on the world, it says. Um, On the other hand, it may be that the National Theatre is a chance to reflect on precisely those changes, to think about the different ways in which the nation might be seen to represent uh, people, what constitutes the nation, what uh, kind of national identities we still think are worth clinging to, if any at all. All of which to say, uh, we we have an almost absurdly distinguished panel to discuss these, uh, these issues, that'll be me, making that horrible noise. (coughs) Um, uh, On my right is Richard Eyre, of course, uh, former director of the National Theatre, of course, theatre director himself, former governor of the BBC. Um, uh, Next to Richard is Vicky Featherstone, who is the currently artistic director of the National Theatre of Scotland, one of the undoubted success stories, theatrical success stories of this decade um, and uh, at the far end is Jude Kelly who among many other things I suppose pr- principally for our purposes here uh, is director of the 2012 Cultural Olympiad and they're going to speak in that order so can I ask Richard to
0: start? <coughs> um, I don't know if there's anything I can say that you haven't already said that. <laughs> uh, This is a statement from the Arctic Critic John Ruskin, and it's an article of faith for me. Great nations write their autobiographies in three manuscripts the book of their deeds, the book of their words, and the book of their art. Not one of these books can be understood unless we read the other two. But of these three, the only trustworthy one is the last. Um, I did actually, I was once asked to speak at a jubilee event to celebrate the arts uh, in the presence of the Queen and uh, I read that uh, quote from John Ruskin and turned to her and she was staring with tremendous interest at the lights on the ceiling. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We've not been blessed by governments or monarchs who've sought to define the nation by celebrating the arts as a national asset. As in all things, except for war and sport, we're diffident and pragmatic about our national culture. But then we're diffident about who we are as a nation. When we English speak of Britain, we generally mean England, and with our reticence, or probably more accurately, arrogance, we fail to acknowledge that there are substantial numbers of people in our country with whom we share no common assumptions about our nation or our culture. I always recoil from appeals to country and national culture, and in this, perhaps, I reveal my Englishness. I lived and worked in Scotland for six and a half years, and what I envied in the people that I lived and worked with was that you could have a sense of belonging to a common culture, however much of an illusion that might be. In this country, we have an enthusiasm for theatre, because so many of the characteristics of the medium coincide with the characteristics of the nation. We like ritual, processions, ceremonies, hieratic behavior, and dressing up. Theater depends on adversarial conflict, which is the stuff of our parliamentary and legal systems. And theater is concerned with role playing which is second nature to a nation obsessed with the signs and manners of class distinction and inured to the necessity as a nation and as individuals of pretending to be what we aren't. We English don't speak, as do the French or Germans or Italians or even the Scots, of our culture, and we don't apply political forces to engendering or embellishing it. It's never been accepted by our politicians that our theatre should be seen as an expression of our identity, our identity, and as a matter of public pride. A surprising and almost sole exception to this was Winston Churchill, who was an enduring icon of Englishness, who observed in 1906 I am one of those who hold that it's the duty of the state to be generous but discriminating parent of the arts and sciences. Let us think with what excitement and interest we witness the construction and launching of a battleship. What a pity it is that some measure of that interest cannot be turned in the direction, say, of launching a national theatre. There was a campaign for over a hundred years to start the National Theatre of Great Britain. This campaign was led by a number of very, very distinctive, very courageous and very eloquent individuals, the last of which was Laurence Olivier, who took over the National Theatre Company at the Old Vic in 1963. It was another 12 years before the National Theatre Building on the South Bank opened its doors. I was director of Nottingham Playhouse at the time, and I signed a letter which expressed our concern that the apparently all too finite resources for the regions would be eaten up by the centre. It's perhaps worth discussing in the course of today whether we were right. The National Theatre on the South Bank was conceived with three auditoria under one roof, each playing a rotating repertoire of three plays. This principle is at the heart of its activities. Its source of artistic adventure but also in its burden in terms of cost and the necessity of mastering the three-dimensional chess involved in the planning of the programme. The building on the South Bank is a monument to the 1960s. It's stern, elegant, forceful, and ascetic. It was conceived in an age in which the exponential expansion of public funding for the arts was virtually unchallenged, an age in which the art theatre and the commercial theatre would not walk hand in hand. This, after all, is a building that's so certain of its purpose, its commercial chastity, and the respect of its audience, that it was built without a sign of any sort advertising its purpose on the exterior. Any organization that has the word word national attached to it must be expected to perform some sort of exemplary function and act both as an inspiration and a focus for the theatre throughout the country. When I became the National Theatre's director, I was acutely conscious of the obligation of the theatre to live up to its title of the National Theatre of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I became its director during an era which was distinctively ungenerous to the arts, the dying days of Thatcher and John Major. But I thought it was imperative that the National Theatre toured extensively on a small and large scale nationally and internationally, and that we formed significant links with regional theatres and independent companies through co-productions. I knew we had to replace the uppercase N in national with the lowercase. I still regret that for a variety of reasons, I was unable to fully realise this ambition. We worked with a number of small-scale independent companies. We started an annual scheme for young people's theatre. We extended the diversity of the repertoire and the diversity of the audience. We introduced colour-blind casting. We conscripted a number of black and Asian writers and we toured large and small-scale productions up to a point. But none of it... I thought at the time, and I still think, was quite enough to live up to the title of the theatre. In the end, the National Theatre of Great Britain and Northern Ireland was defined, and will continue to be, by what happens in its building on the south bank of the Thames. I tried to present plays in that building which attempted to reflect what was happening in the nation, and often we succeeded. I don't think that that ambition has expired. Today's National Theatre is currently playing three plays, England People Very Nice, The Observer and Death and the King's Horseman, about respectively immigration and racism, interventionism and idealism, and nationalism and colonialism. I still think, as I did when I was its director, that the National Theatre manages to square the circle of popularity and experiment, and is an entirely admirable organization that seeks to share a common purpose and a sense of community with that public that it serves, even if that community is limited to London and the home counties. The founder of the Irish National Theatre was the poet Yeats, who by encouraging and presenting the works of O'Casey and Singh was probably the most successful producer of the 20th century in the English-speaking world. In his poem on Yeats's death, Auden famously said that poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its making, where executives would never want to tamper. This is a half-truth. A nation is defined by its culture, and that culture is made by artists and their public, by poetry, if you like, not by political forums. That's what I admire so much about the National Theatre on the South Bank, whatever its limitations and whatever its drawbacks. I admire and envy, too, the National Theatre of Scotland, which, by not shackling itself to a building, has managed imaginatively to conscript the diaspora of talents which used to comprise the Scottish National Theatre with a small n, and to produce work that is distinctively Scottish without being in any sense nationalistic. Thank you very much. (laughs) This conference was supported by
1: the School of Theatre Performance and Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick, Warwick Arts Centre, the Humanities Research Centre at the University of Warwick, and the Department of Drama and Theatre at Royal Holloway. Thank you.